turn to our scripture reading uh, for this morning, continuing our series through Josiah, King Josiah. Um, so we'll look at 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 through 27. This is God's word. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Nico, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds according to what is written in the law of the Lord and his acts first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. This is God's word for us this morning. Good morning. If we've not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line, and we have come to the end of Josiah's life, as you, you have just heard, which means that we are wrapping up this front half of our series today on seeking God, on what you can expect to come out of your life as you seek God. And if you've not been with us, we've been talking about King Josiah. Josiah became the king of Israel when he was very young. He was just eight years old. And some of you are eight years old now, or you were eight years old not too long ago. And can you imagine what that would be like to suddenly be king, queen, at your age, to have all that responsibility resting on your shoulders? Some parts of it would probably be fun. A lot of it would be really hard, really difficult. If the sermon is hard for you to listen to, maybe you want to draw a picture right now of what King Josiah would be like at eight years old, at your age, and what that might be like for him. And if you do that, I would love to see a picture of that. Uh, so welcome you to come and show me those afterward if you'd like. Josiah became king at a young age, and he set his heart to seek God at a young age. Set his heart to seek God when he was just 16, which is like a number of the rest of us. And then he carried out some of the greatest reforms in Israel, calling people back to God at a really young age. Today we've just learned that he also died at a young age. If you do the math he was just 39 years old when he was killed in battle. It's younger than a number of us in this room. 
really young for everything that he accomplished in his life, and you would think that would be the end, but God thinks there's actually things for us to learn, not just from his life, but also from his death. Now, if you're not up to your ancient Near Eastern history, let me give you a little context so that some of his actions make sense here. At this point in time, there were basically three superpowers in his day. There was Assyria to the north. They had been the most powerful nation, very cruel, very oppressive, and they were on the downhill slope as a national power, losing their hold over other nations. There was Egypt to the south that was now starting to assert their power a little bit more strongly, and there was Babylon to the east. They were making a play to be the new number one. Egypt sees what Babylon is doing and decides to work with Assyria to join the two forces together so that they can fight Babylon together. But to do that, the Egyptian king has to go up through Israel, because it's Israel's between Assyria and Egypt, has to go up through Israel in order to go to war with this other king. Josiah probably, uh, in verse 20, goes to meet the Egyptian king, most likely to keep Assyria from regaining her former power. And in doing that, Josiah loses his life. You look at that and think, okay, God, <laughs> you put this in Scripture. What are we supposed to learn from this? So let's think about three things today. First, and this is going to sound a little strange, we need to think about why the Bible talks so much about war, because it's everywhere. Second, we're going to ask why God thinks that we need to know about Josiah dying. And third, we're going to look at what happened after his passing. So three things for today. Why there's so much war in the Bible, why we need to know about this king's death, and what happened afterward. First, when you read Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, you keep coming across passages like this. Passages of battles, of godly kings leading soldiers into war, of cities under siege, of famine, disease that comes from all of that. And it doesn't stay in the Old Testament. You turn to the New Testament, and you don't get accounts of war, but you find military metaphors. You hear things about armor and swords, about what it means to be a soldier. You think, what's going on here? Why is all this in here? Is the Bible glamorizing war? Is it promoting violence and bloodshed? You realize clearly not. Our God is nothing like the Roman God of war, Mars, or the Greek God, Ares. Those were gods who gloried in battle, gloried in conquests and chaos. Our God never talks about war as something that is good in and of itself. And so as you study Christian theologies, some of them might say that war can be necessary at times. They'll say that the military is a legitimate calling. You see that when soldiers ask John the Baptist what they should do to repent. And he does not say to them, stop being soldiers. Jesus heals a centurion. That would be a soldier over many other soldiers. Jesus heals a centurion servant and praises that soldier's faith. You learn in a fallen world that war might be necessary at times. That the goal or the outcome might be necessary. But that doesn't mean that war itself is good. God never says that we should praise and honor war as a positive good. He does promise that there is a day coming when there will be no more war anywhere. More than that, Jesus calls us to actively be engaged 
for the purposes of peace as individuals. It calls us to turn the other cheek now, to actively pursue peaceful lives. <laughs> so how do you make sense then of all these militaristic passages? And how do you help other people make sense of them? How do you help someone who has studied history, who knows that people and nations have tried to use Christianity to justify their violence? Or, for some of you, you're now reading scripture with your kids. I just heard of two families this past week who are doing this with young children. You're reading scripture, which means you're going to come across these kinds of passages. How are you going to help your children think about them without glorifying violence, without confusing your kids, or, or just skipping them over altogether? Here's one way that I might try to do that. Think first about the New Testament and how it uses these military metaphors, armor, swords, soldiers. You realize that it gives those to you so that you can understand what spiritual reality is really like. It helps you understand that every day you are in a spiritual battle. It's a battle that you need to respond to, and you need to respond to that battle like a soldier would in a physical battle. And you learn that if you don't respond like a soldier, you're going to get wrecked, and you have absolutely no idea why. That's part of what the Old Testament is doing, too. You remember over these last couple weeks, we've been saying that the Old Testament gives you physical pictures of things that you can see in order to help you understand the spiritual reality of life that you can't see. And so when you come across these accounts, they're reminders. They're telling you this is what life is really like. Even though you can't see it, you are living right now in the middle of a cosmic battle. And so these accounts remind you there's a real enemy out there of your soul. There's a real enemy who hates God, a real enemy who hates every human being because he hates anyone who reminds him of God. This enemy convinced a number of angels to make war on God, to make war on all that God loves, and you were born into the middle of that war. And you live every minute of every day of your life in that war. It's a war where there's no neutrality. There's no Switzerland. You're either throwing yourself into being loyal to God, to loving him, to loving what he loves, or you're not. It's a war for your loyalty. So when you choose to listen to God, to obey him, to do what he knows is best, you are choosing to side with him. And when you don't listen, you're choosing to fight against him in his world. And so all day long, you're choosing which side in this battle am I going to take part in? That's true of every single one of us. And yet many of us li live without realizing that. It's like we sleepwalk through the war. And that's actually one of the enemy's best strategies to defeat you. Just ignore the reality of spiritual war. Live as if the war is not happening. Live as if it doesn't affect you. And God doesn't want that for you. He wants something better for you. And so you come across these passages in Scripture they don't glorify war. They're pictures that remind you it's a regular part of your life, even if you never pick up a physical weapon. 
They're passages that wake you up to the reality of why it's so hard in this world sometimes. Why it's so dark. And the best way to help you get on board with the seriousness of that reality is to pull from these images, ideas from armed conflict. And so just for instance, you'll hear passages like 1 Peter 2.11 that tells you that there is evil inside of you that you have to actively fight. Why do you have to do that? The passage tells you that you have desires inside that war against your soul. God thinks there is no better way to get across the seriousness of what's taking place than to use the word war. Or you flip over a couple chapters, 1 Peter chapter 5, 8, and you learn that there is evil outside of you as well. Evil that's described as an enemy. Again, taking conflict, warring language. An enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Scripture's trying to help you to understand that you wake up every single day to a purpose-driven enemy who comes looking for you to attack you. You need to know these things if you're going to deal with reality. So let me urge you, don't skip over these passages. They're here to help you. Instead, ask questions about them when you see them. Ask things like, what is this telling me about the war that I'm in the middle of? How does it help me recognize that I'm in the middle of it? Are there things here for me to learn that will help me be protected, that will help me protect the people that I love? Are there things here that I can do when I'm attacked? We hold on very hard to this promise that one day God's going to put an end to all war. But until then, he tells you what you need to know in order to handle the one that you're in. Okay, that's point one. Point two, what are we supposed to learn from this battle? Why are we supposed to know that Josiah was killed in battle? It's really tempting at this moment to get distracted, to ask, well, how come he died? It seems like a really obvious answer, but be careful because it gets fuzzy really quickly. The king of Egypt tells Josiah, verse 21, not to fight him, and he plays the God card. He tells Josiah, God has commanded me to hurry. See, supposing God who's with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. Now, what's the obvious answer to why Josiah died? He didn't listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. He did not listen to God. But why would Josiah believe that this unbelieving king is actually speaking for God? How would he know that? Did Nego have some kind of prophecy from God, some kind of vision? Who knows? We're, we're not told. How do you know? How would Josiah know that Nico is not simply making stuff up in order to manipulate Josiah? You have no idea. At which point you realize that's not the point of the passage. Passage is not trying to help you figure out how do I know when a threatening person is speaking for God? Passage is not trying to tell you 
that you should listen to every bully who says, get out of my way or you're going to pay for it because God sent me. The point is not obey God or die young. That would be what would be true if this was a story with a moral. It's not. What's the point then? Think here about what you know. You know that what Nico said was actually the word of God. Why? Because it came true. It's the way things were. You don't know how that was true. Nico could have been making something up. But somehow God brought it about for his own purposes. You don't know why it was true. You do know that it was true. You know what happened. You know that Josiah actually died. And you also know, secondly, what happened afterward, that people evaluated his life. They remembered him for the things that he had done. And when you put those two things together, his death and an evaluation, you now have a visible picture of what's going to be true for every single one of us, for you, for me, for everyone who's ever lived. Hebrews chapter 9, 27 links these two things together. It says that people are appointed to die once and after that to face judgment, to face an assessment, an evaluation of their lives. And this passage in Chronicles gives you that physical, visible picture of what's going to be true of all of us. And so it's not trying to tell you here what to do so that you can live as long as possible. It's telling you that at some point we all leave this life. It's telling you that the reality for every person who's ever been conceived is that once you begin life on this earth, there's a day coming when that life will end. And just like you need to be reminded that there's a battle that you're in the middle of, you need these reminders that every life ends. You need that especially in our society because we don't like to think about this. We all know that death is coming, but most of us live like it's not. Or we'll talk very philosophically about death and dying. You know, it's just a natural part of the life cycle. We'll tuck it away from view so that we don't have to see it. But all that our strategies do is just make things worse when we actually do encounter it. We all encounter death in some way or other. But if you've worked hard at not thinking about it, you have no idea how to handle it. You end up being overwhelmed. You end up being terrified. And God puts these passages in Scripture not to frighten you, but to sober you, to invite you again to face reality, to make sure that you live in the real world, not a fantasy world. And God does that not to make you worried about the future, not to, so that you're absorbed in trying to keep that day off as long as you possibly can. He does that so that you are more focused on today, so that you are 110% invested in this present moment, that you are living now in such a way so that when that day comes, you'll be proud of how you've lived your life. Scripture invites you to consider that future day so that you'll be busy today building a legacy, doing good things today, worthwhile things that have the possibility of leaving a long-lasting impact on future generations. 
That's the life that Josiah lived. It's another evidence of a life that's set on seeking God. See, when you set your heart on seeking God, what is that? That's an outward focus, isn't it? It's a movement away from yourself. You're focused on him. You're focused on those around you. And as your life lines up more and more with his, doing the things that he loves, you end up benefiting the people around you. That's what you see taking place, point three, after Josiah passed. You see that after he passed, his life continued to have an impact on people. He was remembered. He's remembered by godly people. Verse 25, Jeremiah, that's the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah uttered a lament for him. What's that tell you? It tells you that Jeremiah had a very high opinion of Josiah. Jeremiah thought that Josiah being gone, that's not a good thing. That was something to be mourned because Josiah's life mattered and it mattered that he wasn't here anymore. And Jeremiah is somebody whose opinion counted. Josiah lived a life that mattered to the right people. He was missed by good people. Then other people remembered him too. The singing men and women spoke of Josiah in their laments to this day. You might not remember, but the book of Chronicles is written several hundred years after Josiah lived. To this day, what's that mean? It means that people remembered what he did for centuries. What they remember about him, verse 26, his good deeds, according to what's written in the law of the Lord. They remembered all of the things that we've studied these past couple of weeks. That he sought the Lord, that he turned from idolatry, that he led the people around him to worship the Lord. They remembered how Josiah obeyed God. How he was loyal to God, was on God's side in this cosmic spiritual battle. And what they remembered about him impacted how they remembered other people. Verse 25 again, they made these laments a rule, probably be better to say a tradition in Israel. The way that Josiah lived his life changed the way people lamented. It changed the way that people remembered other people. So that people could then say, that was really honorable, that was good. We are so sad that we are now missing this person. His life left a legacy. It left an impact on people that was worth having. It makes you ask, makes me ask, what kind of legacy do you want to have? How do you want to be remembered? Who do you want to remember you? Whose good opinion would you like to have? Do you want the opinion of people who matter because God matters to them, or do you want people's opinion who don't really care about the Lord? Whose good opinion do you most want? And what do you want those people to remember about you? You know we do this, right? We remember people. Every family has people in it that you remember. You tell stories about your parents, about aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents. Everyone tells those kind of stories. Everyone tells stories about teachers they had, employers they worked for, those neighbors who lived next door. Each one of us tells stories. We remember the impact that other people have made on us. But we don't tell the same kind of stories about each person. There's some people that you tell good stories about. You remember things they did really well, things that make you think, I want to be like that. And then there are people you tell stories about because there are people you don't want to be like. We all do this. 
which means that people will probably tell stories about you at some point. When they do, when future generations tell stories about you, what do you want them to say? What do you want them to remember? You and I are not going to leave a legacy that gets remembered for centuries. But we'll probably get remembered for a couple decades. How do you want to be remembered? When I turned 40, I was a year older than Josiah, I remember thinking to myself, if God is kind, I'm about halfway. There's now the same number of years in front of me as there are behind me. So how do I make those few remaining years count? Am I doing the things right now that will be most important to me on the other side of that 40? I thought about that a lot for the next year and a half. I wasn't morbid, I wasn't scared of dying. But I wanted to take seriously that I was not going to be around forever. And I wanted to use the time that I had left in a way that would be worthwhile, so that if you were to summarize my life in a few short sentences like this does about Josiah, I wanted what was remembered about me to be worth doing. It's true of Josiah, he's remembered. People thought about his life, they thought about what he did, they evaluated how he spent his life, and they said that was a good life. He loved God, loved people, that's what he's remembered for. This is a picture that points forward to that day that you hear about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. A day when every person who's ever lived is going to stand before God, before his throne, and books are going to be opened. And the dead are going to be judged according to what they have done as recorded in the books. What happened to Josiah after he died points to the reality that it's not just people who remember what you've done, but that God does. You have a legacy with him, and that legacy matters. He's recorded your life, continues to record it, records which side you choose in the battle, and he evaluates you, judges you by what you've done. He remembers. And if that's where Scripture ended, I would be absolutely hopeless. There are so many bad things in my legacy, so many things I've done that were not worthwhile. The longer that I live, the more of these things that I see that I'm not proud of, things that I really wish were not written down in a book somewhere. I'd be really hopeless if it ended here. But even if you're someone like Josiah, who had a much better legacy than I ever will, Josiah, with all of his goodness, still blew it. If he had obeyed God's voice, he would have lived. But he didn't. It's the same contract that God made with Adam. God told Adam in the garden, Obey me, and you will live. Adam didn't, and he died just like Josiah, which tells us what? We need a better Adam. We need a better Josiah. We need a better king. Someone in the line of David who will lead us. And we have one. We have Jesus. God made a different contract with Jesus. God told Jesus, obey me and you will die. 
because you will be judged as a substitute for all of the times written in the book that your people have disobeyed me. And Jesus obeyed. That means the penalty of the judgment is gone. When the books are opened for Jesus' people, the judgment is going to be that the punishment has been fully imposed. Josiah tried to free God's people from Assyria, from the tyranny of a cruel power that wanted to oppress them. He couldn't, but Jesus did. In his death and resurrection, Jesus set his people free from the power of sin so that it can't control them any longer. Josiah's legacy is amazing, but it's not perfect. Jesus' is perfect, and he shares it now with his people so that the only record that you have with the Father is that you're blameless. No flaw in your eternal reputation, in your eternal legacy. Josiah ended his life buried with his ancestors, unable to continue leading his people. Jesus did not end his life with death. He ended his death with life, raised from the dead, because he did not want the last word on Josiah to be that he was buried with his ancestors, but that he was raised to live again. Jesus doesn't want that to be the last word on you either. He died and he rose again so that one day you will rise. You will rise free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, free from blame with a sparkling reputation because he loves you. And he wants everyone who loves him to be with him where he is. So later today, when those voices inside your head speak up and they accuse you, what kind of Christian are you? Look at what you just did. It's just like you've always done. You shouldn't even bother trying. Your track record, your legacy, says you're always going to fail. When those voices start up, tell them about this greater Josiah. Tell them that what counts with God is Jesus' track record, not yours, not mine. Tell them that what you and I have confidence in is Jesus' power to free us from sin, not our own ability. Tell them that you are not defined by your failures, you are not controlled by them. You're defined by your King in heaven, and you're led by him because he loves you. And that regardless of what you've just done, what I've just done, we can seek him even now. We can obey him even now. We can love others even now. Why? Because he first sought us. Because he still leads us even now.